Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Gabe Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Before we get to today's show, a brief word about the future of the politics guys. When Jay and I started the podcast back in February of 2015, it was most definitely an experiment. Our plan was to see if we enjoyed doing it, which we definitely did and still do, to see how much time and money it took to do on a regular basis, more of both than we imagined, it turns out. And finally, to see if we could build up a large enough audience to keep the podcast going over the long haul. Now, when the show went on hiatus last summer, we only had a few hundred listeners, but we decided to come back in the fall and give it one more try. Almost immediately, our listener numbers started spiking, and before long, we ended up with thousands of listeners. Now, that's incredibly gratifying for both Jay and me, but unfortunately, we've hit an audience plateau that's well short of what we need to sustain the podcast. In order to justify the time and money we put into the show, we'll need to get to at least twice the audience we currently have. That might seem like a lot, but considering that we've already grown nearly tenfold since our summer break, we think it's definitely possible, but not without your help. The vast majority of people who listen to The Politics Guys find it through iTunes, and the best way to get a podcast noticed on iTunes is for it to have a lot of reviews. Right now, even with thousands of listeners, we've only got 33 ratings and just 26 customer reviews on iTunes. So if you're a regular listener, we really hope you'll get on iTunes and rate the show and write a review. In addition to that, it would most definitely be helpful if you could share our new episodes with your friends on social media. We've tried to make that as easy as possible by including sharing buttons on our site, politicsguys.com, where we post links to every new episode. We also post new episode links on our Politics Guys Facebook and Twitter accounts. There are links to those accounts on our politicsguys.com page as well. So why do we need to get bigger, you might wonder? Well, while some of you have been incredibly generous with donations supporting the show, there just aren't that many people willing to donate to a podcast. And we get that. After all, there's tons of great online content on politics for free. But as the old economic saying goes, there's no such thing as a free lunch or in our case, a free podcast. If, you can, if we can get to roughly double our current audience size, we'll not only be likely to get a few more generous podcast supporters, but we'll be big enough to finally attract some advertisers, which is how just about every successful podcast stays up and running. We love bringing you the politics guys and ask the politics guys every week. With your help, we'll be able to keep the podcast going. Thanks. And now, on to this week's show. Our top story this week is presidential primaries. In the latest round of races on Tuesday, April 26th, Donald Trump picked up all but two of the 113 Republican delegates up for grabs, and Hillary Clinton came away with 217 delegates to 165 for Bernie Sanders. Uh, let's start with the Democrats. With Clinton's win in all five states on Tuesday, she now has 2,183 delegates, which is only 200 away from what she needs to clinch the nomination. It's really effectively all over for Bernie Sanders, who announced campaign staff cuts and all but conceded that he won't be his party's nominee. So, Jay, what do you make of the Democratic race at this point? I mean, despite reducing his staff, Bernie seems to be planning to stick it out until the convention. And 
How do you think this maybe affects Clinton's chances in November? I think it's shameful that Bernie Sanders is cutting jobs. Uh, <laughs> I think that's something we need to, you know, it's, um, uh, I, I don't know if he's actually going to have people in China or Mexico do those uh, campaign jobs. Outsource those but, jobs, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, no, I mean, there, there's, I, I get what Sanders is doing. He is, and we've, we've said this a number of times, uh, there is no hope uh, for him to actually win the nomination. Again, with the asterisks, barring something crazy happens to Hillary, um, which with the Clintons, you just you can just never tell. Um, but no, it, it makes sense for him to stick around because he's there to voice an ideological position and maybe move the platform uh, a little to the left um, or a little to. I'm not even sure what if you if you'd call it uh, left. I guess maybe just just uh, change the tone of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and yeah, he would have a, a prime spot there. And I think he's positioning himself also to be one of these people who can go around and campaign for, uh, you know, various Senate candidates, House candidates, um, and, and just be a, a general uh, help help to the party. And, and he'll sort of mend the fences there to the extent that there, there uh, has been any um, broken fences, which yeah, really, if you look at the, the Democrat race, it, it's been very – uh, nice, uh, touchy-feely. Compared so. to the Republicans, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and compared to Democrat Democrat races in the past. Um, so, do you, do you think do you think that going forward, that just his presence in the race for so long makes Hillary Clinton more vulnerable in in November than she would have been otherwise? I don't I don't think that because I, I don't think there are people out there uh, who again, if, if the Republican nominee is Trump. Which, uh, as, as many times as we've said, we didn't think that was going to happen. The odds of that seem to be increasing uh, day by day. Uh, but even if it's Cruz, uh, I, I don't see the Sanders voters staying home. Uh, I think they'll show up for Hillary because everyone sort of mends fences at the end of the day. And a lot of times it's not who you vote for, it's who you vote against. Uh, and I think that's especially true. Uh, with the, the the Sanders voters, and he's he's positioned himself to to make sort of an ideological statement. It's it's a little bit like a um, and again, I uh, conservative friends forgive me uh, a little bit like Reagan in in seventy six. Um, you know, again, knowing that he's is he really going to win? Well, probably not. But uh, he's raised the flag. He's brought in new activists to the party, and he's he's changed the dynamic a little right. bit. I think a lot of people have said it's the the Bernie Sanders voters who are sort of the future of the party. Right. Uh, the Bernie Sanders ideolo- ideology is sort of the future of the party, if not the president of the party. Which and is- uh, Hillary, Hillary is sort of the last of, of, of sort of the baby boomer old guard, I guess. Right. Well, which is not to say that, like Reagan, certainly I wouldn't think Bernie Sanders is laying groundwork for you know 2020 or anything. No, like no, that. not a run for but, himself, but for the the but maybe, socialist position, I suppose. Well, maybe he's laying the groundwork for someone like an Elizabeth Warren to run in 2020 exactly. if a Republican wins in 2016, that sort of thing. And certainly, as we've talked about before, Bernie Sanders still wants to do whatever he can to take the Democratic Party to the left. And if he can't do that by being the party's presidential nominee, he can maybe do it at least to a lesser degree by trying to support more leftist candidates in his party who are running for for seats in the House or the Senate. Exactly. And and maybe he helps Hillary uh, on that front in that Hillary can uh, can sort of remain aloof in some of these other 
uh, races where she might not want to interject herself. Yeah. Uh, and, and Sanders can do it for her. So, uh, you know, I, I think it, um, I think, you know, if, if you want to look overall, who's like biggest winner, regardless of who actually is the nominee, who actually becomes president, uh, I'd have to think you'd, you'd pick Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, another thing that I found pretty interesting, and we'll talk about this a little more later, but uh, John Boehner made some remarks earlier in the week, maybe after a few cocktails, I don't know, wouldn't be surprising. But one of these remarks that I, that went kind of underreported, I think, is his comment about he wouldn't be surprised if a couple weeks before the convention on the Democratic side, something big happened with Hillary and Joe Biden basically kind of dropped in as the savior of the of the savior of the party or something like that, which was I, I don't know if he was just saying that just for, you know, something to say. But uh, well, sometimes we do stuff like that. Yeah. We sort of just say stuff to fill, fill space. Um, my sense is maybe that's one of them. Or, or sometimes you say stuff just to lay down markers because it's one of those if if you say it now and, and it doesn't happen, everyone forgets about it. Uh, sure. If you say it and it does happen, you can go back and say I was a genius. Yeah. So then again, I always then again I think you know John Boehner is just slightly more connected than we are. So you know who who knows? Well, that, it used that, to be that would, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> how who knows how many friends he has now? But yeah. uh, but but certainly more than Ted Cruz. But that's another story. Anyway, um, so okay, so the. I guess you're saying that you don't think this hurts Hillary at all. I don't really think it hurts her at all either. She did pretty much the same thing when she was running against Obama, stayed in until almost the bitter end. So, yeah, I don't think it makes that much of a difference either way. I I would be very shocked if she isn't the next president, although I you know, would have been – I said I was very would be very shocked if Donald Trump were the nominee. And speaking of the Republicans, right, I mean he swept all five states in, uh, on Tuesday. Not only that, but he swept them with bigger margins than we've – you know, come become accustomed to see, and now and that's, he's, and that's the big story for me. Yeah, absolutely. Is the the margins, and again, it's one of these uh, uh, this whole Trump experience for for people who uh, have have sort of been active in politics or follow politics and and think they know what's going on. Uh, it's been very humbling, certainly. Um, and and I was one of the people, and I think you were too. Absolutely. And as were most. Uh, I guess most of the world. We were not alone that, in our wrongness. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, there, there would be a, a peak Trump uh, thing that he would tap, uh, you know, cap out at, you know, 25 or 30 percent and, and no more. And as the other candidates dropped aside, uh, the rest of the Republican electorate would coalesce around whoever was left, be that a Cruz Rubio case, whatever. Um, but the margins – you know, last week showed that that's that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, he's getting substantially uh, more uh, votes than the other two candidates put together. In some cases, um, yeah. I mean, and it, you know, it it seems hard. And neither of the other neither of the other candidates are close. They're both kind of equally. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to think what the word is, but non-dominant. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's not a. It's not a matter of if you've got a, a Kasich uh, or or a Cruz. Within a couple points, and then the other guy at, at five percent or something. Uh, both of them are, are hovering in the twenties, which is the opposite. You would have thought that's where Trump would be. So, so let's kind of flash forward. Let's kind of get into the future here, saying that assuming, which is what the conventional wisdom, God help us, will assumes is that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee at this point. He's going to get absolutely destroyed by Hillary Clinton in the general election. The Democrats are 
quite possibly going to win the going to win the Senate and uh, are at least going to make huge inroads in the House, if not winning it. Let's say that happens. Do do Republicans look back and and just essentially say, John Kasich, you you killed us? I mean, is this is this basically? I guess what I'm asking is, is this a function of John Kasich just holding on for dear life when he had no real chance and being incredibly selfish and destroying and destroying the party just for his own total long shot hopes of being president? Um, I, I don't think so because it, to me, it's it's hard to um, line up any of these particular Trump wins with the Kasich candidacy. You know, if there was if there were some states where um, you know, John Kasich's candidacy was the the difference in the margin between the second place finisher and Trump. I think that'd be a, a good argument, um, but that hasn't been the case. And the other thing to remember is Kasich won Ohio, uh, which had Trump won Ohio at that point, which I think he would have um, uh, if Kasich had not been in the race. Uh, at that point, it would have been even more of a Trump steamroller uh, going forward. So I mean I don't know if it's it's if it's fair to say I mean I think I think there's a lot of blame that will be passed around I mean there will be the uh, after any campaign there will be the, the circular firing squads um, uh, will be assembled sure uh, and I think I think I think a lot of um, the fire I mean again to to my mind would would be trained on uh, is like a Jeb Bush um, who sort of who sort of for being know, such a crum- crummy candidate. Basically, I mean, right. This you, isn't, and this isn't fair to to, to Bush, but um, I'll say it anyway. I mean, sort of dithered, you know. He was the, I'm the presumptive front runner. I'm going to go in. I'm going to suck all the money out, uh, and and by being a weak candidate, attracted so many of these other people into the field, um, attracted uh, Donald Trump, and and that message resonated. I think we've said before, and I've I've read places that in many ways the Trump candidacy, the Trump moving towards the nomination maybe almost accidental he didn't even he didn't think it was going to happen right and right now sort of vanity project right right now he we have met 240 delegates away for the nomination and so you know even going forward if he doesn't do particularly well yeah he's the only right now he's the only candidate who's not mathematically eliminated from getting a majority before the convention and so i'm wondering even if there's going to be a contested convention what do you think is Cleveland going to be less interesting than maybe we had hoped? You know, that's this is one of these we, – we may see something really historical in that I, I have a hard time believing that the Republican establishment will not fight tooth and nail to keep Donald Trump from being the candidate. Really? Because I mean – you know, even, by, if, even if he has the numbers. Because by your, uh, own, by your own argument, it's hard to not say – that Donald Trump is not the choice of, of the people of the Republican rank and file. I mean, he, he right. clear. I've been I've been fighting that. I've been think I've been saying all along. I think it's just a just a rump group, but you know, a third maybe at most. But that's just not true. The the Republican voters, the average Republican voters, want Donald Trump, and in many cases, a majority of them want him. And so, how do you justify keeping Donald Trump from the nomination if that's what the people who are your party? clearly want well that's that's a good question and, and that's the question they're gonna they're gonna fight it out um you know i i guess the the argument could be made in was it was it 76 uh the uh uh teddy kennedy jimmy carter uh floor vote on mm-hmm. the rules of the convention right 
that might have made a difference. I mean, I could see something like that happening. Um, you know, I guess maybe the other thing is, you know, does the establishment try to cut a deal at some point to say, all right, you're going to be the nominee, but at least, um, you know, let's let's start making some some concessions on here is what our platform is. Uh, and I, I don't know about that because there's 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 two schools of thought. The one being if Trump is going to be the nominee, the better place to be in, in some in some people's view. I mean, the, the moral place to be is to say, forget it. Uh, I'm, I'm out. Uh, and and uh, when he goes down in flames, right. uh, four years later, you'll be able to say, you know, don't don't blame me. I voted for Cruz or, or Kasich or whoever. I, I was in the not Trump campaign. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also, there's also people, there are people out there who think Trump could win, um, in a general election. I'm I'm not one of them. But, and and then again, we weren't, I, I'm not one either, but but we didn't think he'd even win the nomination. (laughs) So, you know, what do we know? But I mean, it, it seems given, given the fact that both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are incredibly well known and given what we know about how difficult it is for people to change their very well-developed impressions of a candidate, whoever that candidate is, it's hard to see things shifting a great deal. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of people who say, Donald Trump, I don't know. I don't really feel very strongly about him either way. Same thing about Hillary Clinton. I mean, so I I don't see that changing a whole lot. Uh, You know, Donald Trump clearly is trying to change a little bit right now, and it's, it's clearly agonizing. For the guy, he's trying to be a little more presidential. He gave that foreign pol- that awful foreign policy speech off of a teleprompter, and Donald Trump is just not a teleprompter guy. It was so obvious, and he just, it, you know, he, he he's a he's a guy who likes to wing it, you know. And uh, I, I just don't see him attracting significant a significant number of general election voters to avoid being blown out in the in that election whereas Hillary Clinton I think even though she's a crummy politician is a whole lot better than Donald Trump to a you know at least a whole lot more acceptable to a, a larger audience of general election voters and, and I'll throw something else in there and this may sound a little conspiratorial um, but I think history bears me out on this the media and and bear with me folks I think the media has been really pretty soft on Trump so far really yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the the really the tough questions, the the who's pushed them, I mean, it's Megyn Kelly and Fox, uh, because I think in, in a lot of ways the media would love to have Trump as the Republican nominee. Oh God, yeah, I mean, just it's, the, it's, their, sure. it's their dream narrative, a media full employment act, absolutely, and and it's one of these things where um, Trump has been uh, fun and they can sort of pick on him, and you know, actually, it's mostly been Republicans who have been been you know obviously tr- be trying to beat him up. Uh, but once oh, we've tried on our side election, too. Yeah, once once you get into a general election, though, uh, the media gloves are going to come completely off. I mean, if you remember, John McCain was the media darling uh, when he was a, a straight talking maverick. Um, but as soon as he became yeah. the nominee, uh, that perception that changed. Right. And I think Trump is going to get so much more um, uh, nasty exposés, and, and not I'm not saying. Making stuff up, I think it didn't make, you know. No, you don't have to make stuff up about Trump. No, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, you know, I think he's going to have even a rougher time. I would see his negatives actually going higher once yeah. we hit the the general when he's he's not compared against uh, the Republican establishment, um, but uh, against Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so, I, I would agree. 
Now, you know, all, now it's not over yet. And as Ted Cruz would want us to point out, it's not over yet. And everyone now seems to be turning toward two states, Indiana and California. Now, Indiana is the state that votes next. And, right. of course, it was big news this week when Indiana Governor Mike Pence gave a, an extraordinarily lukewarm Kind of, sort of endorsed. Well, I'm going to vote for him, but I like him all, really. I'm not against anyone. So I just thought people want to know. Uh, But at this point, Trump is actually close enough where he could still lose Indiana, where he's right now polls, I believe, have him ahead a little bit. And he's favored to win California. And so he should be even okay without Indiana. I think a lot of this now is the media trying to make this more of a contest than it really is at this point, is is my sense of things, which is what they tried to do for a long time with the Hillary Clinton-Bernie Sanders race as well. Right. I mean, they, it's, they're there to sell newspapers and you got to have a horse race and, um, you know, they're riding this one uh, to the end. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in Indiana. Um, the idea that, again, it, it looks like Trump is, is way ahead. Kasich isn't even campaigning in Indiana. Why um, is that, Jay? Yeah, let's talk about that a little know. bit. I don't know. And again, this is something that, that baffles me because you would expect that Kasich would have more appeal in a place like Indiana, the Midwest. It's right next to Ohio. Um, well, he made, you know, that, he made that deal – the so-called deal with Ted Cruz where they would essentially uh, – where Kasich would agree to not – Yeah, Indiana, exactly. Yeah. And so that way, given that you know Cruz is the one who has the best chance of beating him and then all of a sudden Cruz said, well, no, I never really made any deal a few days later and Kasich's campaign manager posted this cryptic Twitter post saying I hate liars and you know, right. uh, plays right into the whole lying Ted thing and you know, so there's that and then there's also, of course, we should mention, I can't believe we've gotten this far and haven't mentioned it, that if Ted Cruz is elected, his vice president is likely to be Carly Fiorina who has been of everyone who was in the Republican race probably the closest to being willing to take on Donald Trump full throttle. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought that was, you know, you don't usually see a candidate announce a VP pick, but I think the reasons behind the Fiorina pick were pretty obvious, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think they're obvious. And it, I mean, it's sort of, you, you don't always see uh, quarterbacks throw Hail Mary passes, uh, but when there's, you know, a minute and a half left and you're on your five yard line, um, exactly. that's kind of what you do. Uh, and certainly she plays into a lot of Trump's negatives because Trump is – while a lot of people dislike Donald Trump, women dislike him the most for, again, a whole host of reasons. And, and certainly uh, Fiorina is a nice counterpart to that, uh, although a lot of women on the left are kind of rolling their eyes and people on the left saying, oh, sure, she's a feminist and she's not our kind of feminist. So therefore, you know, she's a – Right, right. You know, she, yeah, she, she earned her money on her own as opposed to having – I've uh, been married to the president, but instead of setting that aside, um, uh, right, right, it, it's. Uh, I mean, Carly, Carly Farina also stands to help him in California, uh, where she has you well, know she, many of the Silicon Valley contacts. She ran for the Senate unsuccessfully. Where she in drove HP into the ground, yeah, you know, and made well, a lot of friends along the way. Uh, but uh, so yeah, there's if if there's anyone you could say would, would help Ted Cruz in uh, California, California. I think it would be Carly Fiorina. And she has the advantage of saying, look, she would match up well uh, with Hillary. Right. Um, it would, it would safeguard you from the anti-woman, uh, uh, you know, yeah. claims that would be made, which is, which is, that's, that's Hillary's trademark uh, is anytime someone criticizes or it's the, you're picking on me cause I'm a woman. 
Well, um, I, th- I think the right exaggerates that, but I take your point. Certainly, having a woman on the opposition ticket certainly could help a little bit in that. In that yeah, sense. and and you know, Democratic uh, or, or uh, vice presidential candidates are are typically sort of your attack dog mm-hmm. surrogate, um, and and she'd be a good one at that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, well, let's move away a little bit away, at least from the presidential race. On Friday, the Supreme Court issued a brief unsigned order keeping in place a strict voter ID law in Texas, which, if it isn't overturned before the November election, might prevent as many as 600,000 registered Texas voters from voting due to a lack of required identification. This according to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, needless to say, these voters are overwhelmingly minorities and they would overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. But, world ends, women and minorities hardest well, hit. Well, you know, yes, anyway. That's now, the old headline. I should say there was a ray of hope for voting rights advocates. The court did say that if the full Fifth Circuit, which is supposed to hear this case soon, if they fail to rule on the issue by July 20th, the Supreme Court would reconsider their order. And l- let me let me give folks a little bit of history here. Uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 requires states and localities that have a history of discrimination to obtain what's called preclearance from the federal government before altering their voting laws. Basically, they need the permission of the feds. But in 2013, in a case uh, Shelby versus Holder, the Supreme Court pretty much struck down this requirement in another typical five to four decision. The court's five conservatives came to what I think is the unfounded conclusion that discriminatory practices weren't significant enough to justify continuing that preclearance requirement. And then shortly after that ruling, exactly what I thought would happen and a lot of liberals thought would happen, happened. A whole bunch of conservative southern states sprung into action, passed so-called anti-vote fraud laws that just coincidentally made it a whole lot harder for minorities to register and vote. And Texas, the state that in its infinite wisdom put Ted Cruz in the Senate, was one of those states. And so when the voter ID law there was challenged – A federal district court judge ruled against Texas, stated that the law created an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote and amounted to a poll tax. And this was back in 2014. Texas appealed. A three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit stayed uh, in injunction or put in an injunction, sorry, meaning that Texas could go ahead and, in my view, keep on disenfranchising minority voters until the case works its way through the system. Now, your version of this event, I'm sure, Jay, is going to be slightly different than mine, right? Well, here's what you need in um, in Texas in order to to vote. There are seven acceptable forms of photo ID that you could show. You don't have to have all seven. You need to have one of these seven. One could be a driver's license. One could be a Texas election identif- identification certificate, which is issued by the state at no cost to you. Uh, another would be a Texas personal identification card, also uh, uh, issued by the, the state at no cost to you. Uh, a Texas li- license to carry a handgun. Come on. Who doesn't have a, a handgun license in Texas? Um, a military identification card, a U.S. Uh, citizenship certificate, uh, or a U.S. passport. Any of those things uh, would be acceptable. And, and course- that's that's really fairly much in line with a whole lot of other states. There are many states that have – these kind of requirements. The, the big uh, uh, gripe was um, they wouldn't allow college IDs uh, to serve as a, a form of uh, identification for voting. Well, you know, and, what and, there's, a, and there's a completely good reason for that. Well, I was going to say in an earlier in uh, earlier dissent, Justice Ginsburg said that there, she, by her estimates, uh, more than four hundred thousand eligible voters 
would have to have round trip travel time of three or more hours to get any sort of a, a qualifying ID, one of those things that you mentioned. And just in general, between the inconvenience, between that as well as the fees, which is that's that's exactly why the district court judge said it amounted to basically a poll tax. And these things do come down. You know, you made the joke about the end of the world affecting women and minorities the hardest, but these things do come down harder on women and minorities. And plenty of studies have pointed out, have come to the conclusion time and time again that this whole thing about voter ID or about sorry vote fraud is just a sham. That there are almost oh, no, no cases of it, and that, that it's we're a not get well. Into I'm that okay, right okay, now. okay, I mean, fine. Because I, I can pull up the numbers that uh, we had the the um, down in Cincinnati, one of your poll workers who voted for Obama six times. No, don't get me uh, wrong, and, Jay. and then went around on a speaking tour for Democratic candidates, being proud of it. No, I am um, not saying. Now hold on, I am not saying that vote fraud doesn't happen. It does happen. What I'm saying is the bigger problem is mass disenfranchisement that, as, as a result of these laws. So you weigh the one thing – and it's always been that way. Is you have to weigh the, you know, the potential for fraud against allowing people a reasonable chance to vote. And Democrats well, and, and Republicans – Texas also allows you to vote by mail, right? You can, uh, is Texas you a vote can, by mail? Law yes. I'm, look, I'm looking at the okay. Texas Secretary of State site right now. Um, go there, uh, you know, register, they'll send you the stuff. Um, the only, it only requires, this only is a difference for people voting in person. Um, so, so, so what exactly is the reason for, for instance, then not not allowing a college ID? Because you don't know where someone lives if they're in college. Typically, they may have two residences. So it, it, has, um, it has nothing to do with the fact that most college students are young and more than likely, more often than not, likely to vote for Democrats, you don't think? I mean, are no, you, I, I, are, I mean, are you, are you look, saying if you want to say that's the, if you want to say that's the, the fallout of it, uh, sure. Oh, it's just a happy coincidence. But, no, but, but let's look at um, part of uh, – being a registered voter is you're registered in a, a certain place. Now, again, this doesn't matter when you're talking about the president or a statewide election, but it certainly matters in congressional districts and it matters uh, for local elections. And these things are conducted too, and they count also. Um, I mean, I, I can remember there was a, there was a period of my life where I will, I will admit uh, I was registered in two different places. I could have voted in two different uh, places had I wanted to when I was in college. Uh, just because the, the way the system was, I was registered at, at my home uh, where I, I you know, grew up and lived in Youngstown. And when I moved to college, people signed me up on a voter registration drive and I had two ballots. Uh, I, I didn't cast two ballots because I'm not that kind of person, Mike. Um, no, you're not. Jay. But I'm saying it's, it's quite easy. It would be very easy to do that. So but um, you, you don't. So you don't you're saying you don't really you don't really trust all the studies that find that there is very little vote fraud. Well, if there's any vote fraud, isn't that a problem? Sure, of course. But I'm, I'm asking. I'm, I'm asking. And why, if, if there's you, if so there's you don't a, want to answer, you don't want to answer the question. Sort of, I'm it's asking. Sort of like I saying, well, there's there's very little shoplifting, so just take it. No, that's not uh, what it's saying at yeah, all. No. It's saying that there's you know saying that well, how far do we want to go to prevent shoplifting? Do we want to have a pat down of everyone who comes in and leaves, or sorry, everyone who leaves the store? No, we don't because we weigh having the, the shopping experience be non-intrusive or easy against that whole idea of, you know, how far do we want to go to prevent shoplifting? So it's a balance here. We certainly could make – we could probably design a system that there would be almost no vote fraud and it would be incredibly difficult to vote. 
and that would have the effect of disenfranchising effectively the people who are most likely to vote for Democrats. And if you're, if you're, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you honestly, can you honestly say that this isn't political? Um, yeah, I think I can. Oh, man. I think I can, absolutely. Oh, my God. Okay. I mean, either, either you believe that one person, one vote, uh, or you don't. And none of this is, wow. is, uh, is, is difficult. I mean, this is the, the crazy thing is the, in order to get into most of these buildings um, uh, where the hearings are held of, of, you know, the state, state building, you have to show more ID than what you would to, to vote. Uh, there's plenty of ways to do it again by mail. Um, it's not, it, hang on. I'm, I'm pulling up here. You know what, you know, Mike, they have, they have mobile station locations here. They'll come to you. In some Again, instances, the secretary, secretary of state, but probably unless you're a minority or woman, I imagine they ask you that oh. when you when you call them up. Um, but again, this is this is not a a. Uh, um, and so burden. it's just it's, it's just not an the... unreasonable burden uh, to someone for someone to prove who they are, to prove they're actually a citizen and they live where they say where they they say uh, they live in order to participate in democracy. So it's and, just... and I would I would turn the question to you if if. Uh, you know, you think this this voting law is is political? Is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's um, comments on this uh, are they political? A little bit. Uh, yep, in the sense absolutely. That she'd rather see absolutely uh, a little bit go to the polls. I think they are a little bit. Uh, just like I think it was political even if, back even in if they go to the polls illegally. Well, I just, uh, well that's okay because because that's there are guys. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think she would go quite that far. But I think I think all these laws are political. Just like I thought it was political back in the fifties and the sixties and before when the Democrats were in a similar situation and they manipulated voting laws to make sure that minorities wouldn't vote against them. So, I mean, it, we've seen this happen since the very beginning. No, no, and I no, think to say this isn't political is incredibly naive. This, that's something completely different where no, in the not. 50s and 60s you had people who were physically barred from voting. You're right. The degree uh, is different. I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. IQ tests. You had those sorts of, of uh, tests, uh, those sort of bars that were uh, explicitly designed to prevent minorities from voting. And they did. In this case, all you need to do is is sign a piece of paper, uh, send in an email, uh, write a letter saying, hey, I would like to uh, vote. Uh, and, and you can either vote by mail or they'll take your picture sure. for free. Like I said, you got your mobile station locations. They'll it's come to you. It's not nearly as easy um, as how, you'd like to point out. How hard is this? Thing, but-, but it's still too tough uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks that uh, people are being disenfranchised. Well, I think you know a lot of people think they are, but anyway, um, clearly. And, and quite honestly, I'm going to I'm going to go a little bit further because I'm I'm wound up today. Okay. Uh, you know, we're recording this show in the afternoon on Saturday afternoon as opposed to Sunday morning, so I've kind of like had more coffee and I'm more more awake now than than I am on the in the mornings. Um, but no, I think it's it's a little bit of an insult really? to the people who fought for voting rights. Oh my really, gosh! Who had, really? Who had, who had fire hoses and attack dogs? Wow! How, uh, that's amazing how you're turning this thing to around. Say it's it's a burden for someone to have to show an ID. Okay. Or have, or have to again? You could vote by mail. You don't even have to uh, appear at all. You just have to write in and tell them who you are and where you live. Okay. So uh, just before we move off this issue, let me just make sure I'm clear. So you're saying that Republicans are not playing politics with this issue at all. They are just concerned about the sanctity of voting. And that's, that's pretty much it. I, I think, yeah, I think the sanctity of voting matters. I, I'm not saying that you don't, but I, okay. I just wanted to make, make sure I understood you on this issue because 
Wow, I could not disagree with you more. All right, anyway, on to another issue where we might disagree. I don't know, maybe we'll agree a little bit on this issue. We'll see. But on Friday, the White House announced recommendations that would make it easier for federal, state, and local agencies to purchase so-called smart guns, which only fire when operated by their owner. Now, advocates of the moves argue that support from the federal government with its massive purchasing power could jumpstart the move toward improved smart guns, which, if widely employed, could potentially put a significant death, dent, sorry, death, dent in gun-related injuries and death. So... What do you think about smart guns, Jay? Are you a are you a fan? Do you think this is a good idea, something that should be pushed forward or not? Eh, I, eh. you know, I, I'll, <laughs> this is one. If you want to say, well, do I agree or do I disagree? I'm kind of well. I, no, I, I look the the government can buy whatever kind of guns it wants. Uh, I I have no idea how how advanced the technology is. Not very. Uh, how well do all these things work? Um, I have a smartphone, and it works probably a good you know. 85, 95% of the time, it goes really smoothly. Um, but it's a matter of if my phone jams up or crashes or something like that, it, it's typically not in a situation where I have to make a split-second decision about am I going to shoot someone before they shoot me. Right. Um, so I, that, that would be my concern if you want to make guns uh, too smart because the bad guys are not going to have smart guns. Uh, the bad guys will have guns that, that shoot uh, uh, sort of <laughs> quickly and easily and – um, quite honestly, if they go off by accident, well, that's okay too. Um, right. But I, I guess it, it, it troubles me a little bit if, if uh, you know, how, how reliable are these smart guns going to be? Yeah, you know, I tend to agree with you on this issue actually. Uh, I think the White House is being very disingenuous when – and their talking point on this has, has long been – how is it that the gun industry is the only industry that has steadfastly opposed efforts to make its product safer? And I think that's that's a really unfair way to characterize it because it's, it's not, not supposed to be a safe product, right? Exactly. I mean, it actually makes it more dangerous in a way to the owners, and because this isn't a foolproof technology yet. Now, maybe in ten, twenty years, I understand the argument saying that well, if the money doesn't go into that, how is it going to be more foolproof? But to paint this as a, a smart gun is better than a dumb gun, not necessarily because if you want a gun to, that's reliable right now, regular old fashioned guns are a lot more reliable. And so while I am absolutely behind the White House and gun control advocates on a lot of issues that are related to firearms, this is one where I I have a hard time getting behind them on this actually. Well, and the other thing that to think about, I mean, smart guns to the extent that they would prevent accidents and death uh, it would be accidents of death of, of, you know, a child finding a gun in a home, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and, and then wouldn't be able to fire it. Um, uh, but the idea that you're going to have, you know, police officers, it, it, again, it just doesn't line up. There's no, there's no means ends test there. Yeah. And your point, uh, you know, your point about the, the bad guys aren't going to have smart guns as long as there's an option. Who's going to – I mean I think a lot of people are just not going to want to buy the smart gun. Not only that, but right. – except, yeah. except the police officers who will <laughs> yeah. be forced or stuck to with them. them. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and again, the, the idea – and there's a little bit also of a uh, – there's a little cylinder in there uh, in that um, uh, here we're going to funnel a bunch of uh, state, local and federal money to industries or, or groups uh, that, that we like politically. Sure. Um, and, and, you and know, try to give them a, a leg up. 
But and also I should point out there are just a, like a gazillion guns already out there. None of them smart. So the idea that this is going to make any sort of a difference at any point in the foreseeable future, even if the federal government put all of its weight behind it, I think is 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 just kind of either naive or ridiculous or what have you. So I, I don't really think there's much to this, and I, it's probably it's probably a good thing. I'm I'm not a big fan of this uh, of this latest move by the White House. Well, and I would I would just hope that local uh, law enforcement um, agencies are are given the option to buy the smart or the dumb guns. Yeah. Um, that that we don't move into a situation where we have essentially uh, whether it's whether it's an overt federal mandate or whether it is just uh, making making uh, folks an offer that they can't refuse. Uh, in terms of here's all the federal goodies, you go out, buy this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. That that there's not that that uh, pushes back because I, I think it's it would be disadvantageous to uh, law enforcement who are um, are trained are capable and and uh, you know so yeah absolutely um you know one final technology related story before we go today uh, I don't know about you but when I'm driving to work every day if I just look over actually I I am driven to work every day. Uh, not that I, you know, making, wow. well, I'm not making a great salary or anything like that. My wife does the driving because my driving makes her literally sick. Uh, that's a whole other story. But when I am being driven to work every morning, when I look over, what I see more often than not is somebody on their phone. I'm sure you see the same thing. Yes. Right. Yes. If you're not on the phone yourself. But, and you know, a lot of us think that the problem of distracted driving is getting worse. In fact, there are, there's some data that back, backs this up. Uh, it's estimated that uh, fatalities, road fatalities are going to be up somewhere around 8% over the last year. And for a while, they've been going down. And of course, what does everyone blame? The distracted driving since smartphones. Well, there's something that might help out. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's out of New York where so many new things come, I guess. Uh, something called the Textalizer. And have you heard of the Textalizer, Jay? I've, I've heard about it. Tell, okay. tell us, tell our listeners how it works. Well, how it would work is uh, if an officer comes to the scene of a crash, he would ask for the phones of drivers involved. He'd put them into the Textalizer and it would be able to tell – it wouldn't be able to see the actual messages on their phones. It would be able to tell if they had been using their phones up right at the point, you know, at the point of the accident. And uh, failure to hand over a phone could lead to a suspension of that person's driver's license, just like if they uh, refused to take a breathalyzer test, which, you know, really kind of an interesting idea. So what, what do you think about this? I, I don't have a big issue with it, really. Um, maybe you'd expect that I would, but I, yeah, I, I, I do kind um, of. Um, it's it's again. This is this is not a you know sort of warrantless search where the police are just coming and grabbing your phone. It's they're on the accident scene and uh, they're charged with investigating the accident. Uh, it's not uncommon um, in the legal world. I mean, this is sort of one of the first things that people ask now in a uh, any kind of um, uh, automobile accident is you know were you texting and they subpoena the phone and and uh, uh, we are able to tell when texts were sent and, and so forth. Um, so, so it's already sort of out there in the the civilian world, mm -hmm. um, you know, for insurance companies, you know, fighting amongst themselves. Uh, I don't, I don't see a big problem with it, um, with law enforcement having that same capability. Um, again, this is not just a sort of stop and frisk and let me see your phone, and right. it, it's it's subject essentially subject to a police stop, subject to an arrest, um, and. You know, I'm. I think it's. It may make uh, people think twice about texting and driving, and 
uh, I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, I don't, although and I think quite honestly, what, what we're going to see in the next couple of years, uh, I think technology will move forward to the extent that, um, we won't have that as much. I mean, it's, you're already seeing it already. I mean, I have, you know, Bluetooth built into my car, um, you know, where I can be on the phone without looking at it. Uh, I, I think, you know, 10, you know, five, 10 years from now, that's going to be very standard and you'll be able to respond to text and send text just by voice. Although, yeah, uh, you know, without I, actually looking at your phone and texting. I think you're right. But, you know, but it's interesting. There are some studies that say this whole idea of the problem is, is your, uh, you're looking down it's at your phone. It's not visual distraction. It's just distraction in general. Right. So it's a bigger yeah. problem than a lot of people necessarily think. I don't think this problem gets solved until we have self-driving cars, actually. So I think things are going to get better or sorry, get worse before they get better. Uh, but I think it's going to be a while. And honestly, I don't think it's going to have a big effect because most people just assume that they can text and drive safely. And they're not going to be the ones in an accident, so they're not going to worry about it. So if this makes any kind of a difference, it's just going to be at the very margins, I would say, in terms of you know affecting people's behavior. Though, that being said, I could see where it would, have, would make a difference when there actually is an accident and they're trying to figure out who's at fault. Yeah. Well, the other place where it might make a difference on people's behavior is in their insurance premiums. Ah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Good point. Uh, Good you know, point. I think that's, that's a, a driver there of, of behavior. And uh, if you're you're convicted of um, driving while texting, you may get hit uh, pretty significantly uh, on your next insurance bill. And and that's kind of often with, with this kind of thing, because here's the thing. Nobody wants to be in an accident. So there's sort of this built in yeah, you know, exactly. kind of there. It's not as if as if uh, people are out there trying to get into accidents. Um, but but they are viewed as accidents and it happens and then you forget about it. Uh, you don't forget about it when your premiums are high for like the next three or four years. Right. Right. So I think that's going to be yeah, maybe right. if this this comes to fruition and, and happens throughout the country, um, you know there there may even be other products and things insurance companies may do. I mean, for example, there are insurance companies that have the you know sort of they check on your driving and how fast you're going and how yeah, quickly you're braking we and got all one that of sort those. of stuff. Yep, absolutely. Um, which always troubled me because I I think that. The faster you can drive without an accident, <laughs> you ought to be rewarded. You know what I mean? You ought to be like, damn, this guy's good. Very I mean, efficient, sort of, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I, yeah, well I, I, uh, on that note, I guess we're, we're more than out of time in a kind of more, I guess, especially spirited episode of the Politics Guide, at least on certainly on the voter uh, the voter issue. So that's it for this this week's episode, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys show, which comes out every Wednesday, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. Our Facebook. Go to votetexas.gov. It's, <laughs> it's quick and easy. <laughs> All right, Jay. Uh, our Facebook page where we post and comment on news articles throughout the week where you can join in, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, it would really help us out if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And finally, if you like what we're doing, want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a buck or two, the price of a Conair full and mid-sized nylon cushion brush set would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.